I texted my friend Helena, who is Belgian Flemish. I had her pronounce Coetzee's last name. Okay, I heard I heard that. Yeah. So I think we're saying inflection. Yeah, it's like Kutsi rather than Coetzee. But it's less... tricky. Yeah. 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 The other day I was texting her and then I said, I'm gonna go to sleep. It was right after I got back from my flight. She texted sleep tight. And then in Dutch, she, I guess it's Schlafwell. And so mm-hmm. I just responded, Stroopapel. <laughs> the only Dutch word. I know, and it was one of the snacks on the flight. That's so funny. Welcome to Read It and Roast. I'm Claire. And I'm Alex. And we're your hosts. The concept is simple. Someone recommends us a book, we read it, then invite them onto our show to tell them what we really thought of it. And at the end, we decide, is this book a read or a roast? Today's episode is pretty special. It's our first one ever. Stay tuned as we'll be releasing one episode a month until the end of the year. If you like our show, be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at Read It and Roast and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please keep in mind that today's episode does contain discussion of sexual violence. If that's not for you, join us instead for episode two out at the end of August. Without further ado, we bring you Read It and Roast. Welcome to the pod. Tell us your name and who you are. Hi, I'm Alexandra. I'm 31 and I live in France, in Greeks, northeast from Paris. Alexandra and I have known each other for several years and connected pretty quickly about books because we both realized that we both like reading. We both also like different languages. And Alex was one of the inspirations for this podcast that Claire and I wanted to have because she made a recommendation to me that really threw us all into this kind of reflection of how fun would it be to have a podcast so then we can re-invite people and let them know what we really think of the book that they recommended. (laughs) What kind of reader are you? What kind of role does reading play in your life? If it does, if it doesn't, if you don't consider yourself a reader... What's up with that? I used to read a lot when I was a kid. I was at that time an only child. So, you know, I had to do things on my own. And then growing up, less and less. And then it's been maybe two years that I started reading a lot more. I work as a lawyer, so I read a lot of legal material Uh, and write. So uh, I'm always reading stuff. But Mm -hmm. When you, you know, when you're in university and then when you work, you tend to read maybe less. I read less and less. And then, yeah, two years ago, I say, I, I thought I should read more, like more books and less TV, more books, less Instagram, you know. So, yeah, I read like five to 10 books a year. I read mostly on holidays. And I try to read in English as much as possible because it's one of the only ways I can continue practicing English. So I try to to read in English, but I also read in French, obviously. Do you think that reading is better practice for you than watching TV or movies in English? Uh, It's not better, but my boyfriend doesn't really speak English, so we don't really watch stuff in English together. Yeah, I'd rather like watch something with him in French and then on my own time read something in English. But yeah, it's that makes sense. It's a better practice to watch because you can hear mm-hmm. the accent. When a, you don't understand something in a book, you can stop reread it. Yeah, while in a film or series, you don't you don't pause every time you don't understand. So it's not a better practice, but it's different. It's different. I know as a kid, there were words that I never heard pronounced until yeah. I was an adult. And so when you read the word for the first time, you're like, man, I don't know how to say this. So I totally understand. Like, well, watching TV is probably a better option in that regard. Mm-hmm. Hot take, chaos should be pronounced chouse. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what book have you recommended for us today and why? So I recommended His Grace. I won't say the author's name because I, I can't I can't read it out loud. <laughs> Why did I recommend it? Trick question. 
actually, you know, uh, you were on your way to a six hour flight and you had nothing to read and I saw it on the shelf and I was like hey why not because <laughs> I know you like to read uh, and I thought it was a good book so it was well written I really enjoyed it and I thought you were the kind of people that would enjoy it in the same way I did you could understand uh, because it's quite how can I say that there's a story and there's a story behind the story it's complex without being complicated but I really like that phrase yeah <laughs> so no uh, no real reason but yeah mm -hmm. a serendipitous reason nonetheless like I said it worked out it really threw us for one when I was like Claire this is what we're gonna do <laughs> I did look into the pronunciation of J.M. Kotsi Kotsi it's a Dutch last name. He comes from a Dutch Afrikaner family, but Kotsi came from a primarily Anglophone background, which is why his writing, his fiction is in English and why he also does translations from Afrikaans or Dutch to English. Claire, how you doing? Did you have any like first reactions when you jumped into it? I mean, I'm not as well read on the history of South Africa as I would like to be, I'll yeah. admit. However, I feel like, because I feel like this was kind of occurring as I was a child. However, um, I found that this was a really, I don't know, an interesting look into that period in time and kind of like how the world was being shaped. Disgrace by J.M. Kotsi was published in 1999 originally. It won the 1999 Booker Prize. He, he is one of two South Africans to win the Booker Prize twice. Like you, Claire, I feel like I'm like woefully underprepared, not just on like South African history, but also the literature. The novel pulls a lot in the early part from Kotsi's experience as an academic in a South African university. He is a, a literature professor. He <laughs> has this pipe dream of writing his own, uh, is it a sonata? Or a whole opera, really, right? Mm -hmm. He begins what I guess in 1999 would have been called an inappropriate relationship with a student, but we're also thinking of Bill Clinton post-Monica Lewinsky scandal, right? This was rape. Even if, like, the character, he, he says, oh, not rape, but not consent, yeah. you know? Um, like, yeah. Uh, if yeah. there's no I... consent, then it's rape. But he has his way of, like, in French, I would say, mauvaise foi intellectuelle. Because oh, yeah. he turns around situations mm -hmm. in his mind so that it's the situation is okay. But no, it's not okay. Mm -hmm. Like, he refers to literature, like, to turn around the situation. And, mm -hmm. No, you're... You, you want to say to him, like, you're not a romantic hero. You're not a poet. You're just an ass. <laughs> and even there were even secondary materials that were uh, gray on that uh, mm -hmm. reading of the novel, which mm -hmm. I found mm -hmm. very strange, um, yeah. given where we are today. I was I was quite surprised to see that. So once the affair comes to light, he, he is on the receiving end of some harassment from either a friend or a boyfriend of the student. And then he continues to try to make things right in his own poor failing upwards type of way until he stops failing upwards and he basically just loses his position at the university closes up his apartment in uh, Johannesburg and decides that he's going to go visit his daughter and it has been hinted that his daughter has been living with a good friend of hers, hint, hint, wink, wink, a good friend, just gal pals, out in the bush, <laughs> out really in the middle of nowhere where there's like the smallest little town basically just has a clinic, a vet's office, your basic essentials, you know, where his daughter goes to sell her farming goods on weekends and he starts to help her out with that, which is such an interesting transition from like a purely mental activity and like Alexandra was saying like this bad faith mental activity to literally sowing and tilling the earth Alex said earlier there's a story but then there's another story so this is the story obviously uh oh gosh I'm like completely forgetting his name uh David Lurie that's right Lurie and they misspell his name and that's the whole thing when, when the story about the about the affair comes out in the newspaper they misspell his name which he says is great because they won't know it's me, but it's bad because they won't know it's me <laughs> because it's such a Byronic thing to be known for as well. So David is going to spend time with his sister. She's also living near the indigenous peoples whose tribes have always possessed this land. But of course, because apartheid law, South African law, and then tribal law never actually came to an accord. There's a territory dispute. There's actually a property dispute about the land that his daughter lives on. 
I, I found it quite interesting that he's going from like a a Western, you know, more Western-esque city to mm-hmm. um, a very different social structure that he is not used to encountering. And it really kind of, he jumps into it with a very, you know, different mindset to how the people there think of their environment. He he feels quite awkward and doesn't know how to operate within that system. And mm-hmm. that contributes to a lot of the events that occur. I think I misspoke. I said he was in Johannesburg at the beginning, but he was in Cape Town. So Lucy is the daughter and then the neighbor, the primary character who like the main figure representing all these people that have been always living there is Petrus. Yeah, the story with Petrus gets really complicated, really tricky. He's a difficult character to like or dislike because I also empathize with him. And at the same time, I also understand that he's going to have certain ideas about women and property that David has as well that are actually they, they work together, these ideas, right? David can help himself to a woman's body if he wants. Petrus can help himself to a woman's land if he wants. And in the end, that's what ends up happening is that Lucy goes into an arranged marriage with Petrus as one of his wives, where she continues to live on her land and use it as her own. And then eventually Petrus and his family will have it once she passes. Because in case we didn't mention it, Lucy and her gal pal are on the outs. They've actually completely broken up. At one point, some men attack Lucy and David when they're in their home. They rob the house, they steal everything, but it becomes very clear as well that the crime is not intended to be a robbery. It's a crime of intimidation. Um, Lucy is violently raped by multiple men. Uh, David is attacked and, and burnt. He loses a good portion of skin on his upper body. He's able to walk around, but a lot of his injuries are localized around his head and he needs some pretty serious medical care afterwards. They both do. And then eventually Lucy finds out that she's pregnant and she has decided to keep the child, which in 1990 South Africa has another layer of implications of having a biracial child who at one point whose existence would have been considered illegal. I must say like I had to read this book because I was in third year of university and mm-hmm. I had this English course called Political Tensions in Literature. What is uh, it? Political and- Tension in Literature. That sounds like a cool class. Yeah. It was a cool class. Is it like all of literature? (laughs) (laughs) We also studied like song lyrics. Oh, cool. Political implications. Or in the USA. (laughs) Oh, well. Sweet Home Alabama. Zombie by the Cranberries. Okay, zombie, yeah. Zombie, yeah. (laughs) Well, anyway, Disgrace was part of the course. So we studied like post-apartheid South Africa and... Mm -hmm. I must say um, I'm maybe one of the few people that actually enjoyed the book in the class. Like mm-hmm. everybody was like, oh, what a drug. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> a and, little bit. <laughs> I think like most of my classmates did not grasp the complexity of the book. Like, mm-hmm. They were like, like yeah, there, there are two stories, but they, they didn't see how it's inter, um, intertwined. So I really enjoyed it, even though it's terribly depressing and and violent. Everything you would expect from a book called Disgrace. Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting, too. So it sounds like what you really appreciated, too, was this sort of interaction between, like, the things that are happening external to the actual novel permeating the pages of the novel. The fact that this Mm. is a book that can be so contextualized into history. It's like a a very concrete artifact of its time. I think what, for me, really just started kind of pulling on my chain, of course, I don't like the guy, but is when he he starts helping the vet euthanize dogs. We can understand that this is a sad reality. And so these dogs are simply euthanized in order of who's most ready to go first and with the idea that eventually they will all be euthanized. And then he starts sleeping with the vet before and after the euthanasia. <laughs> is that really a sexy moment? I had a little bit of struggle seeing that, but that paired with him wanting to get in touch with Melanie is the student, get in touch with Melanie's family. And he gets in touch with his ex-wife and has dinner with her. And it really just throws me back into the very beginning with Soraya, the sex worker that he's first seen, because that's what the book opens on is him trying to fulfill his sexual desire. I mean, the whole book is just one ejaculation though. In, in when he's with Soraya, all he does is think about her family. But when he's with people who are his family, all he's thinking about is sex. It's almost like he can't exist fully in one moment because he is so, is it because he's so corrupted? I don't know. 
No, and he kind of also separates the woman from what he believes is the transaction of sex. There's like definite like speak very abstractly about the woman and her family and her situation, whatever that may be. But then he'll, you know, kind of take that away from how he experiences relationships with her. And it's bizarre. But maybe that's what I think is kind of my second biggest complaint about the book. I'm cool with him not meeting Melanie again, but her father invites him for dinner, sits him down with the family and has this very nice evening, right, Alex? Like I see you nodding emphatically, an extremely nice evening, but they have this thing together and it's almost redemptive. I don't know. I I think the, the whole thing was weird. How do you like, because from the father point of view, David raped his daughter why do you invite him for dinner that makes no sense and with Does your he... wife and your daughter and your other daughter and like why well, and then and and like, the wife punch him in the face the wife yeah. is super yeah. freaked out right in that same regard you know he's apologizing to the father and he's not apologizing to melanie um he he the father is the one who feels that he is owed the apology <laughs> because it was his mm. daughter and it you know he it it's you know he was wronged in some way he feels that he was wronged in some way so and he feels wronged in some way when lucy is raped yes. his own daughter is raped he feels wronged it's still kind of one of those obstacles i have to fully embracing the i don't know that it's a story of redemption even though some acts are kind of redemptive it but to fully embracing this kind of acceptance of david turning his mind around and kind of just deciding to continue on the eastern cape as he has and not really atone it's so interesting you should say that about redemption i So I read some secondary materials that draw an arc between Lucy and the change in South Africa at the time. Not saying Lucy is like a symbol, but maybe almost um, that, Mm -hmm. you know, her attitudes towards South Africa are sort of indicative of the progress of the country and where everything is going. And that's how she is seen as a character. There's a quote that uh, on page 205 that kind of really greatly illuminates this this point. Her father says, how humiliating. He says, finally, such high hopes to end like this. She says, yes, I agree. It is humiliating, but perhaps it's a good point to start from again. Perhaps that is what I need, that I, what I must learn to accept, to start at ground level with nothing, not with nothing, but with nothing, no cards, no weapons, no property, no rights, no dignity, like a dog. Yes, like a dog. So I think that, you know, reading her that way, is Mm -hmm. really interesting when you uh, read quotes like this, because a lot of white South Africans felt as though they were starting off where others have started after that point. That was sort of like the pervading idea is that like the country is starting over. But however, (laughs) given that reading of the character, I took a lot of issue with keeping the baby of rape to signify sort of like a, a changing country or like changing attitudes in the country. I understand like um, there's a lot of like varied political elements to her keeping that baby. However, you know, if you're going to read the character that way as sort of almost a symbol of a changing country, why is it that a violent act against a woman is portraying the redemption of the country <laughs> in a way? Yeah. Is, I mean, does that, does that make well, sense? Maybe it does. And maybe it's because the word that we're using is redemption, but really it's more like of an of an evening. Because that actually on 205, that same line that you read, I read quite differently. Not with nothing, but with nothing. No cards, no weapons, no property, no rights, no, nor di- no dignity. This is coming from a queer woman too. Right. This is a queer position from way before the 1990s of no dignity, of nothing, of wherever you go, you start with nothing because even what you have is not yours. And so it's almost like he wanted to make it really complicated. He was like, she's going to be gay, going to be a product of rape. The child's going to be biracial and it's going to be a weird kind of choice to, to symbolize the future and how it's just sticky and complicated and can't get easier. And I get that. But there's also, you know, the trope. I mean, mm-hmm. this is not quite exactly the same, but there's always the trope that the lesbian dies. Yeah. You know, kill your and gaze. Like, kill your gaze. Absolutely. Exactly. And so is this not torment your gaze? I mean, I just feel like the the change is occurring at the expense of this queer character. And what does that say about all of this? It's I understand it's complex and it, and I'm to some degree I'm being a little bit reductive, but I don't know. That that really kind of rubbed no, me the I- wrong way. <laughs> 
I don't think it's reductive at all because the issue is there are going to be situations in which literature is going to portray misery that we have already encountered in many different situations. Right. It's more the issue that the book capitalizes so much on the fact that it's her choice yeah. afterwards. And yeah. because he is, David is the one who's supposed to be showing a change of heart and his only change of heart is simply to be able to accept whatever, but then that means that her choice stands, her choice is that fence between the redemption and not. So he has to accept her choice and support it or just live with it. When you mm-hmm. abstract it to that situation, it yeah. is troublesome. How is this presented to you, especially if this was a class on like political tensions in literature? How was this contextualized for you? Was it? Do you feel it was contextualized well? Like, what did you do to fill that gap? I don't think it was not too much context uh also oh shit like, really yeah i know um south africa is not usually on the news in france because it's so yeah. far away and of course we all knew uh what was apartheid and what happened with you know nelson mandela and everything mm-hmm. but it's not a country that a lot of people know about mm-hmm. but also i read that south africa was there's a lot of violence and a lot of sexual violence like it's one in three women are mm-hmm. raped uh, in south africa so maybe it's a choice of the author that lucy is a victim of rape i don't remember a lot of context mm-hmm. around the book um, because the course was like it's a topic that is so large that maybe she, the teacher didn't have enough time to really focus on South Africa but we had like some elements of context but it wasn't sufficient to fully understand that's a good point about the rape being a very common form of violence in mm-hmm. South Africa it made me realize too with Lucy since Petrus claims the boy as family and then marries Lucy, it's a property thing too. She has a kid that's technically his family. And so that may have played into her decision as well as not just this child is a symbol of moving forward, but this child is what ties me to this ground now. Yeah, I think about what would have occurred had she chose to get an abortion and what that would have, I mean, again, I mm-hmm. my point stands, I don't love it. But if she had chosen to get an abortion in the same line of thinking that we're going in, mm-hmm. like, what would that have said about her ties to that place? I do yeah, yeah. this makes sense. I mean, how, and how would that have affected her relationship with Petrus? Right. I mean, maybe, maybe they wouldn't have known. But what if she had been diagnosed with HIV AIDS afterwards, which was a risk for her. She was fine. She, she did not contract HIV AIDS. That's another direction he could have taken it in to also show kind of this breakdown. Although I wonder if because it was just too topical, you know, in 1999, I mean, we're talking about like barely a decade after the huge wave of the AIDS crisis and we're still, the world is still reeling from the effects of it really and still being educated on it. I wanted to touch on a point about this conversation and discourse and, and whatnot being primarily dominated by South Africans of European descent, um, because I watched the 2008 film, Disgrace. Oh, um, they have a movie. There is a oh. movie. Yes, it is an Australian production. It received like an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. So it was pretty widely, I mean, at least by viewers, well-received. It stars John Malkovich. Really? So a a pretty big name. As David Lurie. Yes, as David Lurie. But what's really interesting is he has more of a British accent. I mean, maybe that's my ignorance, but his accent, you know, seemed to me to be more of a European accent um, during the film, um, whereas his daughter has more of a South African accent. So I just thought it was very interesting that, you know, certain choices were made to represent clear distinction in, you know, these characters and how that ties them to specific places. Side note, on the on the film, have you ever heard of DoesTheDogDie.com? Yes. <laughs> DoesTheDogDie.com is a website. Initially, it started off just to as a way to see like if a you know you type in the name of a movie and the website will tell you if a dog dies within the film if you in case you don't want to see that. Um, <laughs> but it the website has expanded to include a number of triggers, so to speak. Um, oh, as, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Um. So that like if you type in the name of this film, disgrace, there are there's a whole list of a poss- trigger warning yeah a potential <laughs> trigger warnings for the film and the only one that's listed is that a dog dies what <laughs> oh my god exactly i was very surprised to see that but yeah anyway alex's look of disbelief from across the atlantic is just killing me right now <laughs> this is wrong in so many ways it is it is my 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 they couldn't stop at violence against women they had to kill animals too <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's interesting that 
that movie wait so okay i'm looking this up that, that movie was made in it's an australian production it's an australian it was made in 2008 okay 2008 so cooksy became um australian on march 6 2006 he became a citizen okay. and from an article from the guardian it looks like it could be an, an opinion piece because it's titled is jm cooksy an australian writer the answer could be yes and the quote is that Coetzee's acquired Australianness is deliberately adopted and stressed, and that that tends to be an opinion held by Australians. Okay, so they is, they claim him. I don't know. They well, I don't know. It, does it sound like it's a deliberately adopted is a good thing, or does it sound like it's a putting it on? But he they say that he left because he was displeased with South Africa, which I know a lot of people tend to have opinions about immigrants who leave their country from a place of privilege because they're not happy with it and then they move somewhere else so I wonder if that had something to do with it I don't know Australia has its own post-colonial and racial histories as well right. forms of apartheid right however um to go back to my point I, it was like really interesting that uh there were no the the accents in the film and then like Petrus's accent you know was very different from Lucy's and um yeah. and, and even um Melanie's accent um, and her family. Um, and then, you know, the languages spoken through there are there are bits of other languages spoken throughout the film, and it's not entirely noted in closed captions what they are. I think like accent and language and place are like very interesting features of the film that is not necessarily mm -hmm. explored in the same way in the novel. Okay, so Petrus is played by a French actor of Cameronian descent. I wonder if that I wonder if, if that's why I'm like I'm curious, are the accents choices? Or are right. they related to the actors, what they could do? Yeah, I'm not because... certain. But I, I I, I, read it as quite deliberate. Okay. But um, I'm, again, I'm, I could be wrong. Having not seen the movie, I'm just going to say it sounds deliberate to me because so much of the book is people just talking to each other. Right. Or David talking to himself. There are a couple like pregnant pauses, but the movie does rely heavily on dialogue to move the story along. There, there are not many scenes that are not heavy with dialogue you know just as the just as the the novel so so it's six pretty close to the novel yeah oh and, and the dialogue is very close to the novel um almost i was quite surprised the, the film is only about two hours long most of the dialogue is taken straight out of the novel i do have one question for alex and in some ways i was torn because i thought maybe we should come into this like much more educated but like i like this idea that we're having this conversation we're all open to discuss the gaps in our knowledge. Alex, do you, outside of like the contextualization made around this novel for you in your literary sphere, especially given that you, and I'm going to refer to specifically Anglophone literature, um, especially because for you, you encountered this in a lot of foreign language classes primarily, and then on your own because you seek this out. In your sphere, do you get a lot of Southern Hemisphere Anglophone writers? Do you get other South African, like what is what do you see around this book or is this book kind of in an isolated area i would say isolated yeah um, yeah because even in you know courses we don't really uh, sometimes we get australian material okay but it's rare also because you know the australian accent is so different from the british one that we're used to then it's really hard. I, I remember an English test. You had to listen and answer questions. And the mm -hmm. guy was Australian. And most of the class failed the test because we couldn't understand that guy. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, we don't we don't get a lot of uh, Southern Hemisphere. What I did find interesting when I was teaching in France, I, so since I taught bachelor's and master's students who are in English literature programs or English education programs, is that a lot of them had taken many history classes and so their their knowledge of for example of apartheid of the last generation of children stolen in, in australia that they were very 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 educated on these matters more so than i considered myself but then very surprised to find out that the story was the same in the u.s or in canada but then by i think most canadians and americans are pretty aware that apartheid happened i was going to jump in and say that um you know i was educated in the American school system, and I, I really didn't receive a ton of education on the topic. And to go back to your point on on literature, I have a bachelor's and a master's in English, and I really didn't read a lot of Australian or South African literature. And anything outside of the you know American British world was considered um, world literature. Yeah, it's sort of like a weird distinction that I 
don't really care for it. Well, that the U.S. really downplayed apartheid for a long time because of the diamond trade. With the technology boom in the 1990s, it was actually not beneficial for the U.S. to create these political tensions with a country that was providing them natural resources for building computers. And so I do think that it was neglected to a certain extent purposefully in our system. I think it was also rather new. We, we You and I graduated a bit more than the decade after apartheid ended. Mm-hmm. I feel like my, my, the course materials that were included in my education, you know, still included 9-11 things that occurred, um, you know, post, you know, millennia or, and mm-hmm. whatnot. So I, I do mm-hmm. feel like it was something that should have been included and was just, yeah, notably absent and probably purposefully so. Jeez. Yeah. They're trying to keep us done. <laughs> <laughs> Rebel <Ramel> and read. <laughs> Alex, if you're ready to test our friendship. (laughs) My top complaint about disgrace, as you were saying earlier, when I was spending the night at your house, I had to fly out early the next morning and I had already finished my book and I had, what was it, Paris to Montreal, Seattle, at least eight or nine hours of a flight. And Alex goes, Claire, I don't know if I told you this story, but she starts looking on her shelf and she's like, "Mm -hmm -hmm." and then she goes, And then she pulls this book off the shelf. And all I see is like, I don't even see the title, her hands covering it. I see this mangy looking dog. And she just like chef's kiss and then beats on her chest with the book. And she's like, this book, my goodness. And she's holding it to her heart. And then she's like, you have to take this with you. I have zero information other than J.M. Coetzee, Disgrace, dog and some rusty looking gas tanks, or I'm not sure what that is on the cover. And that she loved this book. So then I'm reading on the play. You were not ready. <laughs> I was not ready. Chapter one. For a man of his age, 52, divorced, he has, to his mind, solved the problem of sex rather well. And I dropped the book on my tray table. I was like, the fuck is this shit? I don't need to read about a 52-year-old man who's got his sex life figured out. And that was my first initial. And then I'm reading and reading and reading. And of course, it's not a very dense book. I finished it in about four hours. And this is just, you were wrong to recommend it in the way that you did. That is my biggest (laughs) roast of the book is like, what the hell were you thinking? (laughs) What in the world is going through your mind when you just said it to me like that? Light plain reading. You, yeah, light plain reading. End of vacation just chill but why did you catfish me when I read it the second time I was like oh my gosh (laughs) did I really recommend it that's incredible did you really sometimes we fondly remember things in a different way I don't know what is the fond memory that you had of this (laughs) before rereading I don't know I, I was like I really enjoyed that book. I think she will too. It's true. It's depressing. And, you know, I'm not a depressed person. I, I do read and watch a lot of depressing stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you you like crime and spy stuff too. Yeah. So, yeah. I guess I would say, not that you're into depressing things, but you're maybe into like more sinister things. Maybe. I don't know how much I like the cover because I always judge a book by its cover. And that's another thing that I want to roast. This is my in. cover. Oh, oh, you're absolutely covers. nothing. You know, Alex, you have the same one as me, right? It's obviously a photograph, Lucy Harmer, but I'm like, who took this picture of this starving dog? And then didn't write on the inside of the cover, no animals were harmed in the making of this. <laughs> I need to know, not just does the dog die, did the dog get something to eat? The title, Disgrace, it has this very Judeo Christian fall from grace resonance. Mm-hmm. And that means that there is a sacrificial character, which would be a, a Christ-like figure. But then at the very end, the very, very end, Bev Shaw, the vet who euthanizes all the dogs, when he finally decides that he's going to euthanize the, the dog that he's actually had kind of a connection with, which in my mind makes no sense. There's so many other dogs to be euthanized. Why do you feel like this is the most like, oh, no, I'm going to end my, my Byron-esque narrative here. And she, he brings the dog in, bearing him in his arms like a lamb, he re-enters the surgery. I thought you would be saving him for another week, says Bev Shaw. Are you giving him up? Yes, I am giving him up. 
is it the dog that David is giving up or is it himself that he's giving up? And if so, who is the Christ figure in this fall from grace? And so that's, I think that's my thing is why does the narrative need to be redemptive? Why does there need to be a step up? Because the situation does not deserve a step up at the end. It doesn't. So on, um, I believe it on mine, it's page 32. Yeah. But um, he, remember he likens himself to Lucifer? Yeah. The angel out of, hurled out of heaven. If you're yeah. going to read it that way, he's the the sinful character. I believe that the, in that if you're going to read it that way, the dog would then be the Christ-liked martyred figure and he would be considered the Lucifer figure. But then does that mean Melanie, the student, has simply been led astray by the Lucifer figure? That's a good question. Not that everything has to rebound back into that reading. Right. But, but I, I, just, I just thought it was an interesting yeah. connection to make that like he yeah. brings this up at the at the very beginning of the novel and then you're making this connection at the end. So I think it, there is some like, sort of like coming mm -hmm. full circle element to that. It is a little bit self-serving though, if you do yeah. it that way. How do you feel about this, Alex? Is that a legitimate critique or do you think we're uh, splitting hairs I here? Yeah, I think it's, it's a book about redemption, but I don't think David redempts yeah. because he doesn't feel guilty. That's the yeah. point also that he doesn't feel guilty at all. Yeah. He would um, rather see himself be murdered or whatever. I don't like when something tries to be like, nothing is great, but we're going to do our best. Bye. See you next book. <laughs> I empathize with Coetzee. Like, where do you take the story from there? It obviously kept me hooked till the end, which means that in and of itself, it's not bad. I guess that's what it is. It gets really old just to see animals as the materiality of life and death and showing them as just like the carnal manifestation of like what we're going through. And that gets old. I'm not saying it's wrong or bad. I'm like, all right, you're going to euthanize a dog because you want to represent the ills of society and what we can't do for the people who need it. And it's like, kill your animals, kill your gays, kill your animals. Like, do better. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm over it because I live in a post 9-11 world and the way that we want to see our misery and disgrace portrayed nowadays has changed. We don't want to be reminded of the finality of life, the briefness of our experiences. I think we want to be reminded more of the continuities of life. A la YOLO. A la YOLO. <laughs> Do you have anything that you want to say, Alex, about this book? I want to say I dislike the main character, but okay. I still like the book. Yeah. Uh, because sometimes sometimes you like the main character, so you like the book. Sometimes you dislike the main mm -hmm. character, so you dislike the book. And yeah, I dislike mm -hmm. the character, but I, I really like the book. And I think I was, it was well written. You know, reading in a foreign language, style is very important because if it's not fluid, mm -hmm. it, it is hard to read. So, But what you say about like just liking the character but liking the book I mean that's what everybody says about the catcher in the rye Holden Caulfield is one of the most annoying people in the world and he is he's a teenager he's annoying he's so obsessed with himself and self-righteous and that's Lurie maybe he's Holden Caulfield 30 years later and in South Africa what are you reading now what are you watching what are you listening to what kind of media are you consuming nowadays I am reading a book by an, a German historian. It's not a book, it's a brick. <laughs> um, <laughs> about the witch hunts, mostly in Europe, how how it came from, uh, you know, the Roman era and he describes the witch, different witch hunts as uh, it's a genocide. So mm -hmm. he explains how, how we came to killing all these women and mm -hmm. how the um, comment on est arrivé là quoi how we arrived to this point how we arrived it's uh how the witch figure was constructed in people's mm -hmm. mind it's very interesting but... do you have any hot takes on books or reading uh you know as i said i read spy novels Mm -hmm. And one of the, um, the most well-known authors is John Le Carré. I don't like his books. Uh, I tried, <laughs> really. I, I tried because uh, uh, that's the master author of spy novels. So, yeah, I read and I was like, no. I mean, the stories are not, uh, the stories are good, but the writing is so bad. Like yeah. The first time I read it, I was like, oh no, maybe it's 
translation, you know, maybe, I don't know, but writing, it's not translation, it's just not fluid, <laughs> not, ah, I don't like it. The, yeah. the second, the, the first book I read is in French, The Constant Gardener, but the second one, I don't even remember the title because I never finished it, I dropped it because I was like, that's well, too hard to read. So, yeah, I just okay. like John Le Carre. <laughs> <laughs> Any book is roastable. You like what you like. And that's that. Art is art when it solicits a reaction from you. And if your reaction is, this was super interesting to read, but I don't like it because there's a starving dog on the cover. <laughs> that is legitimate. Of course not like, oh, I don't like this because I'm pro-apartheid. That's a bigoted opinion and that I'm never going to support. But I don't like this because the dog dies. Oh, sure. Or I don't like this because I feel like as legitimate as the themes are, I feel like it's overdone. All of the above are completely defendable opinions to have. That's my hot take. Claire, you got a hot take? When a man writes rape against a woman, like I don't, I've never read anything where I feel like it is like doing what he really wants. Mm. He really wants it to, he wants to make like a profound statement about something. And I feel like it never adds what he's trying to get it to add to the story. Mm -hmm. Is it necessary? Is it doing what he wants it to do? I don't think that's the case in Disgrace, but there's also the the question of like, what is the what is the practice of the writer? And if is this a writer who likes to throw in random conflict that they don't understand because it is a creative conundrum to work around? Sometimes that's the case with rape too. It's yeah. because it is an incomprehensible act. What I have more of an issue with a lot of the times, it's just like gratuitous and like randomly thrown in, yes. like you're saying. And like it's or character development for the woman yeah. or Yeah. Which yeah. is ridiculous and totally not even necessary. But anyway. So I don't think I don't think that was the case in here. I think he actually might have thought about it a little more. Alex, <laughs> is there any other book in your universe that you think deserves to be roasted? I would roast any book that I was forced to read in French class. <laughs> 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 like Maupassant and oh, 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 we just don't know. Yeah. I'm tired just by thinking about it. Oh. <laughs> Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. We're so grateful for the idea, the inspiration, for the participation and the enthusiasm. We are infinitely appreciative. Right? Thank you for inviting thank me. you. Yes, of course. You're like literally the first person we thought of. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. Thank you. I love you too. Bye, Claire. It was nice to meet you. You too. <laughs> Perhaps it's because this is the way the book opened. Perhaps just the treatment of the sex worker in the beginning yeah. is just, <laughs> I mean, I know that's like part of the point and like illustrating the characters, yeah. you know, attitude towards women and it's, it, it like, he unburdens himself onto her, but then <laughs> he knows nothing of her life. And it's mm -hmm. just, I mean, that's by design, but he's just like, you know, it, the emotional labor and the the unlicensed therapy that's going on and it's just uh, I mean he, he thinks it's a special experience that he is getting mm -hmm. but it's just so typical of you know that exchange and not realizing that she's just good at her job yeah like that is by design and he's mm -hmm. just so like oblivious mm -hmm. to the nature of what's happening but it's just yeah anyway it made me laugh and kind of shake the book and go, what the hell? Like in the very beginning. And, you know, I just, yeah. <laughs> I, I had a similar experience to you just like dropping it on the, <laughs> the girl next to me was like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah. no, my dog is like, what are you doing to this book? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah what a way to open. Yeah. There's a hell of a way to open a book. Tell me disgrace JM Kutsi. Is this a read or a roast? Um, Why don't you go first? I'm 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 debating. Why don't you go first? Yeah. I don't want to say it's a roast because it's dissatisfying. It's not so much that because I like being dissatisfied by literature. Mm -hmm. I like being challenged. Mm -hmm. But this is gonna be a roast for me because it took me to levels of misery without making it clear for me. Are you stranding me in misery to make a point or are you stranding me in misery because there's nowhere to go? Okay, that's fair. I think like, so I, I'm going to call it a read. Um, Ooh. Yeah. Here's why. Given the background of history that it's the, the backdrop it's set against and sort of what I learned from it. So maybe it's sort of like my relationship to the text is why I'm calling it a read, but um, 
I had a very different relationship, I guess, reading the text and watching the film. Like watching the film, yes, mm-hmm. a roast, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I did not like watching the movie. It was a terrible experience. Um, it it was like, you know, sort of violent for violence's sake. If you're watching, if because it, it the film did leave out some of the nuance of the mo- of the book. Like I said, there is more nuance in the book that you do eventually get you're meant to dislike the character that he is and Mm -hmm. what he's standing for it's meant to be ridiculous you don't get that in the film okay the film is like he's just he doesn't his facial expression rarely changes it's you know it's i'm not you know this is my most eloquent read we can edit this part out later but um (laughs) except for that bit i'm definitely keeping (laughs) oh god you know, while I did take issue with many parts of this novel, I do feel like the ridiculousness of the perspective is pronounced enough that I'll call mm-hmm. it a read because mm-hmm. it's making that point. Coetzee's writing is nuanced enough to where I do, mm-hmm. you do glean what he's, the point he's trying to make yeah. and why yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. the function of that ridiculousness. That reminds me too of what some people say about A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara it is that kind of complaint of like gratuitous misery which is not mm-hmm. my complaint about disgrace I don't like you're saying I don't think it's gratuitous I think I just have struggle struggle with where the misery takes me but what you're saying is actually leading me to a new conclusion about my own roast Coetzee does a really good job of completely embracing the privileged white male perspective and gaze because even when he finds out Lucy's pregnant or even before he's like he's very much about like fixing the situation for her without fully trying to understand the situation which I don't think we can understand her position but I think maybe that in that way it's why I feel so confronted against all these other things we've brought up this character is ridiculous and he is able to stay ridiculous until the end because of his privilege that none of the other characters ha- that are focused on have. There's no other white men in the book. No, for sure. And I think that's yeah. part of the point. He's able to like offer these quote unquote solutions. And that is part of the ridiculousness that's even seen as a solution. Because for, mm-hmm. for many of the other characters, that's not even like within the realm of possibilities. Yeah. Um, like what is considered a fix for him is actually, yeah. it's it's kind of amplified to mean like, this would make the situation worse. So like, I feel, I feel like him even suggesting that as yeah. it's meant to make that white male perspective sound as ridiculous as possible. There's a meme going around about how when your rich friends recommend you go on a ski trip or something, you know, like that's so far removed from my reality. Like, how can you yeah. even suggest that? It's so well realized that it is a little bit alienating for me. Okay. That okay. I'm the, pro- that because I mean, I'm the one receiving it's it, me. you know, and like that's, Hi. Yeah. It, <laughs> Yeah, I may be just more reticent to give myself into a literary experience of that kind. For me, it just, yeah, it just stands on itself, this book, without being a bad book. I mean, And it's, it's so interesting like... that you say that because I feel like I initially had such like a, a wall put up. When I first started reading the novel, I was like, oh, hell no. And like, I was just, <laughs> you know, I had, yeah. I was so opposed to, you know, every part of it. But as soon as I like, gradually started to understand mm-hmm. like, oh, that's the point. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's when I became more receptive to like what he's trying to say and his message and like what the novel's trying to say about South Africa and, you know, like a, a piece of history that I, I was mm-hmm. not entirely privy to and the complexities of it all. And that's you know, the real roast, though, yeah. is the American public educational system and how Honestly. little we both know about. Honestly, like, I, mean- <laughs> I don't think, yeah, I don't think we had the context necessary to no. fully appreciate this novel, but I feel mm-hmm. like that's part of why I enjoyed it so much. That was part of the experience for me was the learning element. I, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. I appreciate going into the book not knowing much and you know what? If I had not read this book on a plane, I might have stopped and looked things up. I did. What did I? There were certain pieces that I looked about, like, um, especially geography. I guess I'm not fully aware of, like, where Cape Town even was in the country. And, like, obviously it's Cape. But um, <laughs> uh, in relation to, like, this area that Lucy might have been in, how far away mm-hmm. that is. And, you know, like, there were certain yeah. things that I, like, certain context I did want. And I did start, you know, look up during all of that. And, like, current events from 99 and though that is really a strength I think of the novel too for sure they're not he's not going to give you extra details this isn't written for people who don't know about the type 
this is written for people who want to read about something Bucky and see how humans and history and politics and everything mixes together and how it explodes implodes and grows and I think next I would love to read more works by someone with more indigenous descent to South Africa Mm -hmm. and how that compares to Coetzee's perspective you know obviously it's you know what he's got going on here is nuanced but it is still yeah and I mean it also came out 24 years ago too so it's also like there's absolutely room to for more voices thinking about this I came across this book from 2015 it's called Rape colon a South African Nightmare and it's written by Humla Dineo Gikola, G-Q-O-L-A is her last name. She's a professor at the University of Fort Hare in South Africa. She has written like several different books on the topic on feminism. And she has a post-apartheid book called What is Slavery to Me? Question mm-hmm. mark, colon, post-colonial slash slave memory in post-apartheid South Africa from wow. 2010. And then she does have a later book from 2017. Interesting. She is a professor of literature at Nelson Mandela University, where she holds the research chair in African feminist imaginations. I love that title. Uh, the The fact that the word imaginations is in, I don't know, like that just yeah. it seems so fluid. We also yeah. have some other readings coming up, yeah. which we can segue. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's like a transition. <laughs> well, the good news is that our very next book is not so text heavy. I'm not going to like say how old I am, but I will age myself by admitting that I pronounce fresh avocado as free shavakadu. And I think that anybody who gets that reference could probably have some appreciation for some of the themes as far as the gig economy and what it's like to be our age nowadays and trying to survive. To pinpoint our age a little further, I saw it was from a university where um, a student made a slide about millennial literature. Just the way they characterized it was just, uh, oh my God, I felt red to to filth. And I I just, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the fact that that's a subcategory but it's just so funny how this particular student kind of yeah. <laughs> like just dunking on <laughs> millennials in the process. And I oh, was yeah. like, oh man. <laughs> so yeah, I um no thinly veiled description of the, the next book because I still need to start it. But from what I've heard from you and our guest, I'm excited to, to begin it. Very cool. Yeah. I I appreciate you and Alexandra like recommending this novel to me, you know, getting me to read it for any reason. You know, I'm I'm happy to have spoken about it with y'all. It's you know, like I said, I definitely learned something. I'm I'm never gonna read that again, but I'm glad I read it. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like this is is one of those. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, my thank you. my dear friend. I appreciate you joining me on this journey. We'll talk soon. This has been Read It and Roast with Alex and Claire. Musical composition by Kate Bundy. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Read It and Roast and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts for posts, roasts,